You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 7 today, so if you want to grab your Bibles and uh, begin making your way there. Um, been studying the book of Ezra now for the last few months, and uh, we're just a little over halfway through the book. Um, it's kind of one of our uh, values here is to pick a book, start at the beginning, move word by word and verse by verse through that book, and just see all of what God would show us through that. So I am uh, excited to dive in with you. We're going to be in verses 11 through 28. And, and you know what? If you're joining us you know, for the first time you're here in person or online, my name's Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's definitely my privilege to um, preach God's word to you. So if you want to stand with me, let's, uh, um, let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you don't have a physical copy of the Bible on you, it'll be on the screen in front of you as well. Let me read, beginning in verse 11. <clears throat> this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings. (coughs) And you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the seniors, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, According to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed Be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. And before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. There's nothing more than um, 
that we need this morning than to hear a clear word from you, to hear your voice speak to us in the midst of wherever we are at. So God, I ask that you would come and speak to us. That you would draw our hearts to you. That you would still um, the waves and the rain and the wind of whatever storms of life we might be walking through. That you would remove whatever hindrance there might be between us and you. And help us to hear a word from our good Father, whom I know wishes to speak words of encouragement and correction and strengthening. Lord, come and do that for us now, we ask and trust you to do so. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. As I said a minute ago, we're a little bit over halfway in our study of the book of Ezra. First six chapters, if you were to go back and kind of do a quick review of those, first six chapters basically covered a period of about 80 years, um, starting with uh, the day that the exiles, that uh, all the Israelites who were in captivity in Babylon, starting with that day that the king set those exiles free and said, go back to your homeland and rebuild. Um, From that moment, um, as they returned um, to Jerusalem, until the day that Ezra arrived on the scene, which was last week, beginning of chapter 7, it's a period of 80 years. It's a long time. Um, I I don't remember if we have anybody close to 80 in the room. Of course, I wouldn't want to point that out anyways, so I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hands, (laughs) because 80 years is a long time. You know, I'm 44, so, you know, that's that's twice my lifetime. I've seen a lot in 44 years. 80 years in those first six chapters. You know, the deeper and deeper you get into the book of Ezra, the more that you do the study, the more that you kind of think on what's taking place, it's a story. It's a story about rebuilding. It's a story about restoring. It's a story about reforming. It's a story about reestablishing. You think of those big, hefty words. If you've ever been in construction, done any work on a house that has been severely damaged, kind of catch a picture of what it's like to Rebuild, to restore, to reform, to reestablish something that had been destroyed. That's what this story is about. It's about rebuilding, restoring, reforming, establishing, reestablishing the family of God, so to speak. And that's after 70 years. Prior to the 80 years of history we've just studied through, prior to that there was... 70 years of captivity that uh, Israel lived under because of her sin and her rebellion. We all know what it's like to face the consequences of our sin. So you put the two together, 70 plus 80, I'm not much of a mathematician, but I think it's 150. It's 150 years. They waited 70 years to get set free. They got set free and spent 80 years rebuilding in the midst of the rubble, in the midst of the ash heap. 70 years of captivity, 80 years of rebuilding. And that all climaxes into the end of chapter 6, where God's family then joyfully celebrated the Passover right before Ezra arrives in chapter 7. Let's not forget the Passover, if you're not familiar with all the Old Testament feasts, the Passover was a... uh, was a tradition. It was an annual tradition that uh, Israel would be part of, much like our annual tradition of Christmas, right? Or Easter. Um, the annual tradition of Passover was remembering the time when they were enslaved to Egypt and all the plagues came through. And one of those plagues was the angel of death. And God said, Mark your doorposts with blood. 
And if you don't, your firstborn will die. And uh, it was a symbol. It symbolically points to Jesus, who is the one who triumphs over our enemy. Not the angel of death, but our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And it pointed to Jesus. So at the end of chapter 6, before chapter 7 kicks in, that's what they're doing. They just rebuilt the temple after 80 years. So they're celebrating the Passover, and they're thinking about how the God that they trust consistently comes through faithfully and redeems. And then you jump into chapter 7, <laughs> as we studied last week. It's kind of the day that Ezra arrives on the scene, right? Big bad Ezra hasn't really been there. The reality is Ezra's been in the background as a scribe, writing this whole history for us. And so he finally shows up on the scene. It's interesting because, you know, when you're writing a story and you're a character in the story, kind of the, you know, a little bit of the star of the show, the thing about the Bible that I love the most is that none of the characters in the Bible are actually the star of the show. The real star of the show is God, right? But Ezra shows so much humility, even in the way that he writes this book that bears his name, that he doesn't even insert himself as a character, really, until half, more than halfway through. So you think you watch a two-hour-long movie, and you're waiting for Arnold Schwarzenegger to show up, or I don't know who you watch movies for, but who's the new Spider-Man? Anyways, it doesn't matter. You're waiting for the new Spider-Man to show up, right? And then he doesn't show up till halfway through the movie, more than halfway. It's a two-hour movie, and it's an hour and 15 minutes in. You're going, where is this guy? Last week, finally, Ezra shows up. And I said last week, I'll say it again, it was a day to remember, right? Not because of the day itself, but because of the kind of man that Ezra is. Ezra was a man, like I said last week, who possessed a really awesome spiritual lineage. He was a man of great political influence. He was a man of great courage, a man of great endurance, made that thousand-mile trip for months. He was a man of God. He was a man of God's word. This is what he was known as. It's often been said that your reputation is the story of your character. Ezra's reputation reveals that he was a man of significant character. As we noticed last week, and I think as Pastor Donnie mentioned at the end of the gathering so well, the reality about Ezra is he's just a man. Ezra eventually dies, right? He eventually dies. It's one thing that all of us can't escape. Death comes to get us at some point or another. Ezra died, just a man, but he was a man nevertheless that points us to the most important man in all of history, right? Ezra points us to that man, Jesus Christ. That's who he points us to. All of Scripture, this entire book, oftentimes gets read as some uh, moral code. And to be honest, there are moral codes in the Bible for sure. There's moral laws that we ought to do well to pay attention to, be restrained by, be convicted by, be taught by, yes. But when it's read only as a moral code, there will be a lot of very outwardly moral people in hell. There will be. Scripture is meant to point us to Jesus. Because ultimately, Jesus, and not a moral code, Jesus is the one who does the actual eternal work of rebuilding and restoring and reforming and reestablishing the family of God in the midst of the ash heaps of our own sin, right? When you think about the power and the presence and the penalty of our sin and our rebellion, it is good to know that Jesus, though the text in front of us says that Artaxerxes was the king of kings, not capitalized. The great story for us and the great news for us is that Jesus is the king of kings, the king of all kings. It's good to know that. That's the good news. And you know, knowing that Jesus is the king of all kings that Scripture points us to, Knowing that truth then makes it easy for us to read this passage, to study this passage today um, with Jesus in view. The text in front of us is a letter from a Persian king. It's a pagan king. He's the ruling political authority in Ezra's day. 
And the letter is pretty simple, though lengthy. It's pretty simple. It describes the king's generous investment into the kingdom of God. There's a lot of generosity taking place in this letter. Um, it describes the, the kind of protection that the king extends to Ezra along with a provision of authority. He basically um, endows or bestows authority on Ezra to do certain things. Um, one of the major things he um, bestows upon Ezra is go teach God's word. Go reinstate the rule of God's word in Israel. He also gives him the freedom to recruit a team of leaders to do the work with him. Um, so it's a letter, right, from a pagan king that, that provides all of those things. And yet in the background, we know it is really God who provides. <coughs> Take a minute now and just shift directions with me for a moment. If you have a pen and if you're taking notes at all, and if you're not, I want you to do this. I want you to write down the word courage. Right now, where we're at in, in studying and in this sermon, probably feels like, okay, why is he taking this bunny trail? I want to take this bunny trail for a quick moment to just simply say, where are you at with that word courage? See, on one side of courage, courage gone wrong Looks like a macho bravado, right? Looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger pretending to be a big, bad guy. The other side of courage gone wrong, if there's a central, like, courage in the middle, right? That's actually The other side of that is a cowardliness, an inability to face what's in front of you. And either side of that, courage gone wrong, whether it be the macho bravado, I can take on anything and do anything, or the cowardly side where I'm just going to shrink back, hide in my basement, and suck my thumb, either one of those, um, that's not courage, right? A character trait that I think God wants to see in all of us is courage. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're saved by Jesus, that can never be taken away from you. You've been ransomed by the king who died on the cross for you despite your despicable sin, right? Um, why would we not then live with great courage? Back to the letter. Now that you have that written down. I'm sorry, one more thing. It's going to waste time, but I, don't, I think it's good. I think it's important. I want you to also, if you can, throughout the time that I'm preaching, if the Holy Spirit were to give you a season of your life where you had to exert great courage by his help, and you remember that story, why don't you write that down? It's not so that you might go, oh, look how courageous I am, right? It's not that. <laughs> it's, it's more so that the Spirit himself would encourage you in saying, I've got this. When you think about where we're at in the history of this letter and this story, Israel has walked through all sorts of things that God brought them through. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a burning furnace brought them through that. The Red Sea with the Egyptians breathing down their neck, getting ready to kill them. God brought them through that. Wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years to get to the promised land. God brought them through that. The Spirit of God had brought them through so many death-defying adventures that it would be good for Israel to step back for a minute and go, hmm, right now God has just set them free and given them what they needed to rebuild the temple. The first half, a little over half of Ezra, really is about rebuilding the physical temple. The last half of it really is about restoring and rebuilding a community of faith. Um, so I've often said that the, the two portions of this book are really about those two things. Rebuild the physical temple, rebuild the community of faith, fill the temple with the community of faith. Pretty broad and simple. Think about the things that God has brought you through. The time when he gave you great courage to face something you never thought you could face. Loss of a family member, loss of a child, homelessness, addiction that you've never thought you would get by, an angry relative. You're here today and God brought you through that. And that's meant to give us great courage and help us not to walk in this macho bravado side or this 
cowardly side, but to walk with courage, trusting and knowing God's got this. Back to the letter. That side point aside. Letter that we're looking at. Letter from uh, the king of Persia, right? And the whole letter is all about provision. And again, I, I don't want you to make any mistake as we're examining what's taking place in this letter. It's all about provision from the king of Persia, but behind that human Persian king is not only the hand, but also the voice of the king of kings. The king of kings who has promised to provide everything that we need to be rebuilt, to be restored, to be reformed, to be reestablished. It's the hand of God and the voice of God behind this human king who has promised, I will rebuild, restore, reform, establish my kingdom, my people on this earth at a certain place at a certain time. That's the promise from the beginning to the end. God is the one who ultimately provides everything we need to advance the kingdom of God against the gates of hell and against the power of Satan, sin, and death inside of us or outside of us. So first thing I notice in the text is that God provides favor with human authorities. When you think about that, God provides favor with human authorities. Verses 11 through 14, the opening words of this letter from the king of Persia shows us simply that God has moved in a very powerful way on this king's heart. It's fascinating to me that God has moved on a pagan king's heart to do what he is doing, to write what he is writing. He's moved so powerfully in this letter, moved so powerfully on this king's heart that he actually makes a decree, comes out on Fox News and CNN News, and makes a decree regarding Christianity. That's what's taking place. And he makes a decree that gives Ezra full authority, gives him the full political authority that he needs to gather a ministry team to take the word of God that is actually in his hand, he says, and to minister among the exiles who had returned to Jerusalem. So think about it. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine what it would be like to be sent by a pagan king to minister the word of God among a group of people? This is what it looks like when God provides favor with human authorities. It's nuts. It's crazy. There are stories throughout human history within the church of things like this happening. We would all do well to study some of those. Second thing I notice is that God provides the finances and the resources for the mission ahead. He provides the finances and the resources for the mission ahead. Now again, I think it's crazy to think that a pagan king would generously invest in rebuilding, restoring, reforming, and reestablishing the kingdom of God in Jerusalem. But that is exactly what is taking place here. It's not hard to see that this Persian king, this king Artaxerxes, that he actually trusted Ezra with the responsibility of taking this letter that he has written as his own marching orders to carefully deliver all of the finances and all the resources needed to continue the community reform in Jerusalem. It's nuts. But he trusts Ezra with this job. And this story, when you think about this provision of finances and resources, what, is it, what does it feel like when you, when you read the details? To me, when I read the details of what King Artaxerxes is willing to give, it feels like Artaxerxes is standing up to, stepping up to Ezra and he's going, hey, boo, hey, here's, a, here's a blank check. Do with it what you will. I trust you with all of our resources. Over and over and over again, if you, do the, if you just do the study a little bit of the words that are being used there and the things that Artaxerxes says, it's like he gives him a blank check out of the National Reserve and he underwrites the entire project. And then when you read the final words from the king in verse 23 in this section, he says, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. Now there is definitely a hint of self-preservation in there. And we do know that if you do the study, 
that these Persian kings would do things like this to hopefully get themselves a good foothold as they ruled the nation. They tried to do this with lots of religions. So it's not like King Artaxerxes just became a Christian, okay? Not like they just baptized this dude and he's, it's not like that. God used this man's sinful desires for self-preservation to advance his kingdom. That sounds like, that sounds like my God. Doesn't that sound like your God? I mean, you look at your own life, I look at my life, and I go, we were just talking about this, Donnie just made this comment. Isn't it great to know that God takes what was meant for evil by our enemy, and he turns around and uses it for good. I mean, I'm standing in front of you, a man who was an absolute worthless, pitiful, angry, abusive, checked out, drug-addicted man years ago, and he turned all that around and used it for good. You know this story in your own life if you're following Jesus today, don't you? That's what God's doing here. It's a blank check. Isn't that the meaning of grace? Grace is a blank check to do whatever you want to do. That's the scary thing about grace. But the reality is if grace has taken an effect, if it's actually affecting you in your heart, you know what you won't do? You won't live in sin and rebellion anymore. You'll still stumble, you'll still fall, you'll still rebel, you'll still sin, but your heart's desire will not to be to walk that way anymore because you've actually experienced grace. That's what Paul says. Heaven forbid that I would ever use grace as an excuse for sin, right? It's a blank check. So I just, all I did was, was took God's provision of financial and, and finances and resources and made a beeline straight for Jesus and straight for the cross. That's all I did in my mind and my thinking. The God we serve is so full of grace that you and I can't get out from under the shadow of it or the effect of it. That's a great story, isn't it? Third thing I see is that God provides protection. God provides protection. You look at verse 24, that's where you see it. When King Artaxerxes wrote this letter, what he did was he saw fit to restrict anyone from actually messing with Ezra and his traveling band of, of ministers. Um, and he makes it an intentional point of saying it, too, in the letter. So that if anybody came up to Ezra and his crew, Ezra could take out the letter and go, you probably better read this before you try jacking with us. It's got the king's stamp on it. You mess with me, you're messing with him. Like, that's the kind of courage that I think each of us needs when we face the different ups and downs of this life. It's to be able to look Satan, sin, and death in the face and go, <laughs> you want to mess with me? Really? Are you crazy? You mess with me, you're messing with him. Hello. There's no macho bravado in that. And there's no weakness in that. There's a, there's a godly weakness in recognizing, if I didn't have him, well, you could take me out. Right? So the king makes it a real intentional point of notifying anybody that would try to mess with Ezra or his crew, notifies them in the letter in verse 24. He says, it will not be lawful. So it will be against the law to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the seniors, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. Now, most of that language may not make a lot of sense to us, but if you think, think about it like some of the movies you watch where somebody's taking a trip, and along the way they, they get extorted for money. Right? If you want to pass here... Give me some money. Pay it up. And what the king is saying is don't mess with them. Don't mess with them. Basically what he's saying is that anyone who is considered to be part of Ezra's ministry team, not to be messed with, also will not be held liable for any kind of kingdom taxes. That's the other side of what he's saying here. Uh, the Persian Empire, at this point, under Artaxerxes, is declaring that Ezra and his ministry team is now tax-exempt. Don't mess with them, don't extort them, don't impose any taxes on them. 
So not only does uh, Ezra and his team have this blank check to beautify and to fill the temple with resources, they also have this blessing from the king of not being required to pay national taxes. So in short, what God is doing here is he's providing not only all the means necessary to do the work of the ministry and to also make a decent wage while doing it, but he's also removing any fear from any blowback or any control from any enemy that exists. Follow that. Isn't that what the cross and the empty tomb do for us? It removes any fear of any blowback from any enemy we may face. It allows you and I to stand in courage and say, Satan, sin, death, you got nothing. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not going to live in fear of you. I don't have to because my king wins because his name is the king of kings. So do what you will. All you'll be is like a little axe chopping at the root of my tree and making me stronger. Fourth thing I see, God provides his word. I mean, the word of God is all over the word of God, right? So it seems kind of like a, Uh, redundant to say that God provides his word, but God provides his word in this text. This letter from this king, literally, like I said earlier, gives Ezra the political authority to teach, to enforce God's law in the community of Israel. For all of the importance, I think, in our day and age of the separation of church and state, this is one of those clear instances in Scripture Um, where it is obvious that God is opening the floodgates of heaven with the provision of his word through a pagan king. King literally instructs Ezra to take God's word, the word that is in his hand, which gives me this vision that Ezra must have been carrying around a, a big old backpack full of scrolls at that point. Probably some really cool feather pens. Yeah, I know I don't look like a feather pen kind of a guy, do I? We have one. I should get one someday. Anyways, take the word of God that is in your hand and appoint leaders throughout the region. I mean, he's giving Ezra regional authority. You think of a set of states, three to four states, and so on and so forth. That creates a region. And he's saying, from this boundary to this boundary to that boundary to that boundary, you are in charge. And the way that you are to rule that area is with the Word of God and the Word of God alone. He's supposed to teach God's Word to anyone who does not even know it. He says that. (coughs) He also says, go ahead and reinstate some kind of civil and ceremonial and moral laws to hold that community together. We look at our country, and our, our country probably has been maybe one of the Uh, best uh, representations, maybe, (coughs) of a a free society that is governed by a set of rules and laws, and yet we look into our culture today, and and we see a lot of those foundations being eroded for a lot of reasons that I'll even say, and you've heard me say this before, a lot of it's because of the concept of freedom that we're built on. As soon as you give freedom for everybody to be who they want to be and say whatever they want to say, you're going to have problems. You're going to have problems. Though I agree with those rules and those laws, to an extent, you're going to have a problem because the Satanist also gets an equal ground with me. Right? As soon as you allow that into a culture, it erodes the culture. That's what happened to Israel. That's why Israel fell apart. Israel wasn't a democracy or republic like we are. Israel was called a theocracy, governed by God's word. America is not governed by God's word. Portions of our country were, in some regard, influenced to be governed by God's word, but not literally governed by God's word. That's why we're in the place we're in today, right? So here, Ezra has this freedom to do this because the king just gave it to him. God's word, literally, is supposed to be at the center of everything. It's to be at the center of the the restoration project, right? This rebuilding, this reforming, this reestablishing of the family of God, the community of God on earth. There's no other political policy that is going to suffice for the spiritual work that is about to be done among God's people. God moves on the pagan king's heart to say, make the Bible central. 
And as a side note, it is clear that though Israel had spent 80 years rebuilding the temple, and though they had observed the Passover, there is clear evidence in the text as we move forward that Israel as a community was not governing themselves based on God's word. This is why Ezra has to address the marriage issue later in the text. There is an issue of intermarriage, um, not that interracial marriage or any of those things is wrong. What was wrong was that there was marriages taking place um, between cultures. I would say you could, you could probably say it would be as extreme as this, like a Satanist marrying a Christian. That's probably the best, the, like the, it's, it may be a little extreme. That's what Ezra had to deal with because people's marital unions in Israel were not governed by God's word anymore. So there's clear evidence there that the Bible, God's word, was not central to the rebuilding of this community until Ezra shows up with the power and the authority to do so. Next, number five. Number five, God provides his loving presence. Isn't that good to know? We talked about that a little bit this morning. Donnie mentioned that too. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will always be with you. When I think about all of God's provision for Ezra in this letter, for Israel, for Ezra, the credentials of the king saying, this is the man, the finances, the resources, the protection, his word being central. I think about the provision of God's loving presence and how central and important that is. You have all this other provision, and if you didn't have God's loving presence, it'd be meaningless, wouldn't it? And the Bible wouldn't have the authority or the power that it has if it weren't for the fact that it ultimately reveals a kind and loving and patient and generous and always faithful, always present Father. I don't know about you, but my relationship with my father growing up wasn't great. I have a tendency to kind of transpose that relationship onto my Father in Heaven like many of us do. Um, and yet in this, what we catch a picture of is a father who is loving and he's present. He didn't abandon them, never left Israel. And Ezra speaks about that. And when, when, when I know that, that, that I've got God's loving presence with me at all times, once again, kind of coming back to that image of courage, but I feel like I could do anything. You imagine when you're like you're a little kid, right? You're... You're afraid to do something. Your dad comes alongside you and says, now come on, son, come on, daughter. Let's get up, come on, sweetie, get up on that bike. Let me hold you steady. Let me help push you, right? And eventually, pretty soon, you've got the talent and the courage to, to ride alone. But where's your dad at? In a good, healthy image of the picture, right? Dad's not off in the backyard getting drunk or off with some side chick somewhere or hiding out in the basement. Dad's with you. He's in that driveway and he's cheering you along. You have courage to ride that bike because you know my daddy's with me. And he loves me. It's the picture I see here. When I, when I rest in that picture, I feel like I can face any storm. I can face any enemy without wavering. Do what you got to do. I know who I am and I know what God's called me to. Right? I think Ezra felt the same thing. That's why he writes this in verses 27 and 28. He writes, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing, see it? Who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. Ezra's recognizing, yeah, the king, he says he's the king of kings, but I know who the king of kings is, and he's the one who put it into the heart of this pagan king. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and extended to me his steadfast love before the king. So in front of the king, God is lavishing his love upon me, and that physical earthly king has seen it, has witnessed it, and not only him, but his seven counselors. Seven counselors is an image for perfection. And Ezra's just saying, I know who the perfect king is behind all of this. And he says, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. He knew that because he knew that his God, his Father, is faithful. Just, kind, patient, good, steadfast, never leaves. Not a reckless God. Steadfast God. 
sixth thing we see, and final thing, is that God provides a missional community. It's hard to uh, not, you know, just skate over that. It's easier to probably skate over it, I should say that. Um, easy to skate past that. I, I noticed it last week, and I noticed it this week in the text, that really that's what God is doing. He's, he's providing a missional community, right? When you think about this, you go, what does that even mean? Well, here, uh, there's nothing better than being part of a good family, is there? I, a good family. Even if your um, biological family is all jacked up and on tilt and you got nothing there, but you've got a really good set of friends that you call family. You know what I mean? Or you've got a church community, you've got a small group, you've got a men's group, you've got a women's group, whatever it is. There's nothing better, I don't think, than having a great community of people, a great family, a team that is united around the same vision. And in this case, it's a vision of restoring and rebuilding and reforming and reestablishing what? An outpost, like a military outpost of the kingdom of God here on earth in Jerusalem. That's what they're doing. That's what the church is meant to be and meant to be called to. Yeah, we gather on Sundays and we gather midweek and then we scatter to our places. But as a family, what are we? We're a missional community. We've been given a mission from God to reach people with the gospel to teach people the Bible, to get people rooted in a local church family, right? To see everybody that's a part of our church family become little missionaries in their own spheres of influence, whether it's with your bosses or your coworkers or your family or your friend crowd. This is like a training ground on Sundays and throughout the middle of the week. So train people up in the Word and God's mission of the gospel and then to send us all back out. To be sent. Same language that King Artaxerxes uses with Ezra. You are being sent by the king. The problem with American Christianity, and I hate to rail against it again, but the problem with American Christianity is that we have turned church into a spectator sport. It's a spectator sport where we go to consume a product rather than a team of soldiers who are being trained to go back out into battle throughout the week. And it's not just American Christianity, it's all over the place, right? We come, we consume a product, we feel good. And we invest a little bit, so on and so forth. Moving past that point and really owning our own spiritual growth, really being responsible with that, means I start to see myself not just as somebody who is getting something, which is true because we all need to get fed, right? but also somebody who's feeding others, and on top of that, somebody who now has marching orders to get out there and make a difference in the world. That's the picture that's taking place here. The final words of the letter from this king uh, results in Ezra gathering what? A team of leading men from Israel to go up with me. Leaders. And some people would say, well, I'm not a leader. No, you are. You can try to play with the words all you want. Whether your job is to clean toilets in the church building or pick up sticks outside or sing on stage, all of us have a leadership responsibility in the kingdom of God. And not just in regards to a church building, because that's the other fallacy that we deal with in America too. Because the reality is, the church is not a building, it's a people. There's no, this is just a building where the church meets. That's all it is. And our playground, our mission field, is everything outside of these walls. Yeah, we need to keep our house looking good, right? That's important. But the reality is we need to be reaching people. So he chooses leading men to go up with him to do the work of restoring, rebuilding, reforming, and establishing the presence of God among the people of God. One of the things I love about God is that God is not alone. Don't hear heresy in what I'm saying. There is one God. The God of Israel is one. Yes. There is not three gods. No, there is not. No, I will not get real deep into the teaching of the Trinity this morning, but I will say this. The beauty of God is that He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And within the Godhead, there is one. They are completely united, never to be separated, And that's a picture of the church. It's a picture of marriage, oneness, unity, community. So I love about God. 
God does not call us to walk the road of gospel ministry all alone. No such thing as Lone Ranger Christians. And we have had many who have come through our church doors and become part of our church family for a while who are very much Lone Rangers and do not desire community and teamwork. And we have probably hedged that um, protective barrier quite a bit because we want to protect the sense of family and community. We don't do Lone Ranger Christianity here. We do community here. And by God's grace, I think we do it pretty well. It's life on life. It's looking in each other's eyes and saying, hey, what are you walking through? And how can I walk through that with you? It's also looking in each other's eyes at times and saying, hey, how did I hurt you? And I'm sorry. It's all a part of community. Community is hard, but it's beautiful. There ain't nothing like it. And if you, if you don't have that, if the Sunday experience is all you have, you're eating one piece of helping on your plate in terms of what it means to be a Christian. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you're a piss poor Christian either. Gosh, I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I'm not saying any of that. <laughs> it's an invitation. There's so much more. And it's so good to have that community and that family. It's good to know you've got people who got your back. It's good to know that when you stand against the storm and you're facing an enemy, it's good to know. You don't want to mess with him? You really want to mess with them? <laughs> it's good to have that. That creates courage. It creates courage because it provides people to link arms with in the messy trenches of life. I'm out of time. My conclusion is somewhat long. But I'm going to try to just dial through it quick. Um, when I survey all the ways that God provides for Ezra <coughs> in this text, <coughs> and he provides finances, resources, protection, his word, his loving presence, this missional community, I ask this question, do we not have a better letter? When you think about this letter, do we not have a better letter? Do we not have a better letter writer? Do we not have a better letter in the scriptures? and a better king than King Artaxerxes in the King of Kings, right? I've alluded to this all the way through. Do we not have a better letter and a better king? Maybe that's a sticky statement that just needs to stick. Do we not have a better letter and a better king? Has God not provided more for us in the crucified, risen, and returning Christ than he ever could in a letter from a pagan king? You think about this truth that in Christ we have something that is worth far more than rubies or gold, right? Even if I'm low on finances, if I'm low on resources, I can be encouraged with the truth that Jesus belongs to me. Think about that. Jesus belongs to you if you trust in him. And you belong to him. That's, that's the best blank check you'll ever get. What about protection? I've hit on this quite a bit already. How many of us in this place are going to face a true threat of any kind of physical danger for the sake of the gospel? Not many of us, if any, right? But even if you do face some kind of physical threat because of your ministry of the gospel, should we not understand that uh, our eternal protection under the loving hand of our Father is secure? And it's secure because of the bloody cross, the empty tomb, and the hope of heaven. Think about it. If Jesus secured my eternal salvation forever when he defeated Satan, sin, and death, then the mere threat of physical death in this life, what is it? It's only a doorway to eternal happiness in the perfect presence of my heavenly Father. That's all it is. Death loses its sting. I don't need to be afraid. I can be courageous, come what may. What about the provision of God's word? Missional community, we talked about that, right? So God saw fit uh, to, to not only produce his written word through men like Ezra, and he kept it. I mean, 1,600 years of history covered in this book. 66 different books of letters, right? 40 different authors, 40 authors, 66 books, written over a period of 1,600 years, preserved by the hand of God himself so we could sit here 
and do what we're doing. God saw fit to not only write it and preserve it, but he also gave his one and only son, Jesus. Who is Jesus? Sunday school answer? My Savior. Yes, he is, according to the Bible. But he is also the word of God in the flesh. He's the word of God in the flesh who lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He died the atoning death. He paid the price for our sins to ransom us back from the clutches of Satan, sin, and death. And then he miraculously walks out of that grave three days later so that in him, in Christ, we might come to a saving knowledge of the gospel and then be united with other gospel-saved, gospel-formed brothers and sisters who are then united in heart and mind and soul in this mission to restore, to rebuild, to reform, to establish the kingdom of God on this earth in the form of what? A temple? No. In the form of the local church. A building? No. A community, a family who's being trained, who's being rooted, who's being equipped, who's being multiplied throughout the earth. Right? That's the picture. When I think of all of God's provision towards Ezra, and I make all of that connection to, 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 to Jesus, in those moments, I can't help but be filled with courage for what lies ahead. This is God doing this work. I also at the same time can't help but to feel the weight of responsibility that each of us should equally share as a church family. It's a responsibility in leadership. And I think Ezra probably felt it too as he began that 1,000 mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. He had a letter from the king in his hand, right? As I envision that journey for Ezra, as I envision that letter that we've just studied through from that king, I'm reminded again, you and I have a journey ahead of us. I thank God that we too have a copy of a letter from a crucified, risen, and returning king in our hands. Isn't that amazing? That's what we have. We have a letter from a crucified, risen, and returning king in our hands. It's a better letter from a better king. It's crazy that the king of kings would put that letter in our hands and then send us out to restore, to reform, to rebuild, to reestablish his kingdom here on this earth. Now, if that doesn't fill you with courage, I don't know what will. I have a better letter from a better king. Grab a hold of it, keep following Jesus, and be filled with courage this morning. Amen? Let's stand. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your presence. Thank you for the work that you did at that cross. Thank you for leaving that tomb empty. I thank you for giving us the promise of heaven. I pray, Father, as we close, that you would help us to rest in all of the provision that you have given us in the work of that bloody cross, the power of that empty tomb, and the hope of that promise of heaven. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You're listening to an audio message from the well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.